Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Rates and Barrels. It is Friday, April 7th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Belchior. On this episode, we dig into some news-related items that will impact waiver decisions over this weekend. It's a waiver-centric episode. Talk about players moving up into more prominent roles, some players falling out of prominent roles, looking at pitchers with different arsenals, things that have changed over the course of the first week of the season. So a lot of ground to cover. And we had big news this week, Al. After initially keeping him off of their opening day roster. The Orioles brought up Grayson Rodriguez and had to make his big league debut on Wednesday against the Rangers. After a bumpy first inning, he settled down, pitched reasonably well. And this is all because Kyle Bradish is on the IL. So it's tough to read this situation right now because I think there's a chance that Grayson Rodriguez pitches well enough to change the Orioles' initial assessment but there's also a chance that he's not terrible and still gets sent back down when Bradish comes back if everyone else stays healthy. Now, timing is everything here. There might have been a handful of leagues where people decided to go ahead and, and release Grayson Rodriguez last weekend during FAB. So availability is still going to be somewhat limited. I think a lot of people wanted to stash and see what would happen when he came up. But in leagues where he's available, how are you treating Grayson Rodriguez? How aggressively are you pursuing him? Uh, well, yeah, the, the key, you know, word or, or phrase here, you know, DVR that you mentioned is, you know, limited availability. So uh, if I don't know that I have any leagues that are shallow enough where, where he would be available. So if I, if I were, or if he were in my shallowest league, a, a 12 team, three outfielder league, uh, yeah, I would be going double digit percentage fab, like 11, 12%, uh, because I, I highly doubt that he'll go back down. And uh, I tend to think that he's going to be really good. So I, I think uh, good enough that in a 12-team league that uh, he'd be somebody that more often would be in your, your rotation than not. Yeah, we saw that in the debut, four-seamer, change-up, slider, and curveball, the primary offerings. I guess there was a cuttery through in there a little bit as well. Uh, the bread-and-butter pitch for him among the secondaries has typically been the change-up. So I think the big question with Grace Rodriguez is going to be whether or not one of the breaking pitches is consistent enough for him to get through the lineup three times on a regular basis. I think I'm with you. I think in leagues where he was dropped, I'd be aggressive because even if they were to send him back down, it seems pretty clear that he has that next man up sort of status with them right now. They don't have a lot of other interesting organizational depth starters at AAA right now. They do have DL Hall once Hall is healthy, but because Hall is injured right now, Rodriguez is sort of that guy and he does have the chance to really carve out a spot. 
because uh, he, he had a chance to do that during spring training. So now it's just getting an, ex- an extended audition. I think that's the way uh, I'm looking at this right now. Schedule-wise, uh, things don't look too bad for him next week either. I think that's the other thing you want to think about with a young pitcher. Is it is it a good matchup? Is it a bad matchup? It's actually a very good matchup next time out. Grayson Rodriguez lines up to face the Oakland A's at home in Baltimore. And then if he's still in the rotation next weekend, if they haven't made a move by then, he'd go on the road to face the White Sox, which I know mid-season especially, that park starts to play a little more hitter-friendly, but early in the year when the temperatures are cool, generally not a bad place to pitch if you're looking for streaming options in April. Well, I would offer a caution just in general. This is more about the White Sox in that park than about Grayson Rodriguez, but uh, this time last week when you and I were you know, uh, doing this show, and uh, I was right now, I'm trying to remember which starter it was. Oh, it was um, Michael Kopech. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I kind of put a caution about streaming him against the Giants. And at that point, it looked like the Giants couldn't hit anything. And then they kind of exploded in that series, including against Kopech. So uh, that's one that I, I, you know, with Rodriguez, especially since we're not going to see him against, to put it lightly, one of the better offenses in the next start, that, uh, you know, maybe I would, I would certainly be looking at my options and, and would not be opposed to to benching him for that that start. Yeah, I think I'm in if it's a weekly league for sure because the Oakland start is so good. If you could split them, it really depends on who the alternative is. Uh, Not having Eloy Jimenez, which we'll talk about in a little while, I think does take a little bit away from that White Sox lineup. But generally a group of hitters that when they are mostly healthy should be kind of avoided depending on the circumstances at least. Some other interesting stuff happening news-wise that's going to shape decisions over the weekend. Francisco Alvarez has been called up by the Mets. Now, we saw the lineup for Friday before we started recording. It was Tomas Nito behind the plate for the Mets in that particular matchup. It's a similar question, but on the position player side, Alvarez, I think, had a a shot to maybe play his way onto the roster during spring training to force the issue a bit. Um, He's not catcher eligible in some leagues, so just be sure to check that in your league if you're thinking about picking him up and using him as one of your catchers. But do you think Alvarez can hit enough to change the Mets' plans once Omar Narvaez eventually comes back from the IL? Well, I definitely think he can, but I'm also not taking that for granted. And I tried, in, in featuring him in the waiver column this week, tried to sort of play out both scenarios that if you project him for basically an even split with Nito, which is what I would expect initially because the, the Mets do have concerns about Alvarez's defense, uh, and maybe starting him you know, very slowly into some DH starts. So I think that whether he gets beyond that does depend on on how well he hits. And he's really, really struggled initially in AAA last year. So I could see a situation where he would need to play pretty steadily for a while, you know, have that, that 50-50 split of catcher to, um, you know, maybe make some adjustments. So I'm not necessarily expecting that Alvarez is going to be either playing enough or hitting enough to be a first catcher initially, but I do expect that at some point this season he'll he'll be playing and producing enough uh, to to play that role in, in almost any league. Yeah, when you look at Alvarez, you have to sort of figure out who would come off the roster to make room for him if they were going to carry three catchers because they intend to use Alvarez some as a DH going forward. You'd have to take probably. It can't be someone like Luis Guillorme, of course, because he functions as a backup shortstop. you got to have a backup shortstop ready to go. It might almost be a decision between 
Alvarez and Daniel Vogelback, who is on the big side of a platoon in the DH role. You know, that more or less could be the sort of choice they have to make, or maybe the extra outfielder, Tim LaCastro, is on this roster. So mm-hmm. if they prefer the thump of Alvarez to the speed of LaCastro, maybe that's the path on. And then we're just wondering how much playing time does Alvarez get? You know, Nito's a great defensive catcher. They brought in Narvaez for a reason. It would still be less than your typical slugging catcher. And I think that would mostly limit Alvarez to two catcher leagues. So I'm interested in leagues where he's available this weekend, but compared to Grayson Rodriguez, I think it's a little more complicated for him to stick at the present time. So the bids would be more like five to 7% range in fab. If I was really hurting for some catcher production. And I think I'd only be going that high if I had a bench spot that I felt comfortable stashing Alvarez with in the event that he goes back down two weeks from now or whenever Narvaez is actually back. So you got to be real careful with this situation just because of the way this roster is currently built and because it's mostly healthy in that group of position players. I think Omar Narvaez is their only injured position player at the moment. At the moment, yeah. Uh, So it really is... It is a tough call. I think if you if you don't have bench spots, you know if you don't have a lot of bench spots, or you know you just don't want to have anybody that you want to let go, then I think it's justifiable maybe to to pass on Alvarez in in like a, a two catcher uh, or even a one catcher or especially I should say a, a one catcher twelve uh, team league. But I think if you've got that luxury, you know if you've got four or five bench spots and you you're happy with your catcher. In fact, I got a Twitter question from somebody who's got Sean. I think it was uh, somebody who was Sean Murphy, and they were asking about Alvarez. I said, you know, if you've got room on the bench, I think it's it's it is absolutely worth it because I think if he does just get that little bump in playing time from DH more than just once in a while. I would project him on a level maybe like Danny Jansen, and I think that's somebody you could use in even a like a 12-team one-catcher league. Right, and the long, long-term ceiling here is maybe top five fantasy catcher because the bat is just oh, yeah. that good. I mean, that's that's the type of, of talent we're looking at. It's just trying to sift through the current depth chart and figure out what the playing time situation is really going to look like, and pretty frustrating that he's not behind the plate right away on Friday, but understandable given the concerns they seem to have about him internally. Speaking of the Mets, Justin Verlander expects to return from the IL in April, so that does give us a little bit of an end date on when the ongoing David Peterson versus Tyler McGill uh, battle will be decided, and it gives each of them a couple more starts to sort of make their case. So uh, as you watch this one play out, I mean, is it is there anything you can do ahead of time here? Like, it seems like you have to just wait and see what actually happens. Peterson Looked like he was ahead of McGill when the season began, but they seem like they're on more like even ground at the present time. Yeah, that's my read on it too. So I don't think there is much that you can do. I'll put it this way. If I've got Peterson, which I, I don't, but if I had Peterson, I wouldn't be looking to drop him now because there is going to be enough time for him to have a better start the next time out or the next time after that. And, you know, similarly, uh, even though I think McGill's got the Marlins now uh, coming up. Uh, you know, I, I, there's some risk there in terms of his propensity to give up home runs. So yeah, I think this one's going to take a while to play itself out. So I think both players are, are holds for now. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at as well, especially with that park being as pitcher friendly as it is. And of course, with this team being one that should help that starting rotation find its way to plenty of wins over the course of the season as well. Um, Some more injury news to get to. Josh Donaldson is likely headed to the IL. He suffered a hamstring injury this week. Uh, One thing we noticed looking at this roster 
going into this episode is that Oswald Peraza is the only other infielder currently on the 40-man roster. So if the Yankees do want to bring up another infielder, Peraza almost certainly is that player. But they can shuffle pieces around from the core group they already have, and maybe they could carry an extra pitcher for a few days if they want to do that instead. But I'm not sure if there's any one player who gets a massive boost in playing time. This just seems like more mixing and matching where we could see a little bit of Isaiah Kiner-Falefa uh, we're going to see probably a little more Franchi Cordero, uh, just a bunch of small winners that maybe help us more in mono leagues than someone that's going to make a significant mixed league impact, at least as things look right now. Yeah, that, that was my first reaction, DVR. Uh, first, the, the first player that I thought of is you know, IKF. He's He's got the versatility uh, that you know, he could get a, a bump. I really thought he'd play a little bit more than he has played so far. But it is Franchi Cordero getting the start uh, for the Yankees on Friday, and this will be his third start in the last four games and his third start start in the last three games with the right-handed opposing starter. So I think this is something to definitely watch over the weekend. Uh, I think if Cordero continues to start what appears to be an extended app, since for for Donaldson, then he certainly becomes somebody I'll I'll be targeting in fifteen teamers. Yeah, it almost seems like Cordero would play ahead of Oswaldo Cabrera, which is not something I would have expected. I would have no. assumed that because Cabrera was already there, he's a switch hitter, he looked pretty good in the limited opportunity he had last year, you would go with the guy you're more familiar with as opposed to the guy who just got there. But I understand it when you look at the stat cast numbers. Franchi Cordero has been a very exciting player for a long time, but one that, because of his flaws, just hasn't been able to really put it together and, and deliver on that ceiling just yet. Certainly being in, in the Bronx and having that hitter-friendly short porch in right field uh, could actually help him unlock something over the course of this season. Derek Hall will have thumb surgery. The Phillies just keep getting smoked by injuries and he could return this season uh, it does sound like there's a very lengthy absence in play here I didn't see a timetable yet but when you see could return this season you're thinking several months so that's definitely the concern according to Matt Gelb of the Athletic he covers the Phillies for the site Cody Clemens will be a regular against right-handed pitching now for the Phillies so any interest in Cody Clemens and NL only leagues or super deep mixed leagues, or is this going to be a spot that the Phillies are looking to upgrade via trade or via the waiver wire themselves here in the coming days? I've got to think that the Phillies will make a move uh, at this point, not only because now they're down to their third option at first base, but they're just, you know, they've lost so much depth uh, in the, the you know last couple of weeks. So uh, yeah, I and, and frankly, even if I, for some reason, if I thought that the Phillies were going to stick with Cody Clemens, he would be at most exactly what you described, which is uh, an only option or really, really deep uh, mixed leagues. So, and not necessarily cracking the starting lineup in, in those fantasy formats either. So I don't have a whole lot of interest. If I were to bid on him in AL only, it, it would probably be like a, a dollar bid. Yeah, we saw him as a 26 year old last year, put up a 121 WRC plus at AAA. That was with a 26.9% K rate. You and I have discussed at various points, the, questionable quality of the pitching at AAA, so an elevated K rate at AAA is very concerning, especially for a guy that doesn't draw a ton of walks, or at least has not at that level. 7 to 8% certainly not bad, but if you're going to strike out more than 25% at that age at AAA, you should be walking at least 10% of the time. Uh, maybe I'm splitting hairs. 
We'll see if he can get hot, catch lightning in a bottle. Uh, being in a more hitter-friendly park than he was during his brief time in the big leagues last year certainly doesn't hurt. But yeah, I'm not very excited about Cody Clemens, even though this is a great opportunity for him to maybe carve out the largest role he's had to this point in his big league career. Of course, the other big news of the week, Eloy Jimenez. On the IL with a hamstring injury, it's a two- to three-week injury. It's the hamstring that he did not strain last year, the other one. So I guess that's a good thing, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or, or they're both uh, problematic. It's, it's really hard to say. But it looks like the White Sox are using a Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger platoon to fill in. We talked about this a bit yesterday with Mike Curlin. Six out of the six games the White Sox have on the schedule for the upcoming week are against right-handed starters. So it could be a pretty big Gavin Sheets week, even if he's not necessarily someone that you're going to hold on your roster very long. He could be someone who's very playable with that schedule next week. Yeah, I, I you know, I think that it's fine to get Sheets this weekend if you need a short-term replacement or upgrade. I don't know that over the, the weeks ahead that uh, I would feel great about Sheets as you know the larger side of that platoon. Uh, I think that he'll probably play just little enough that... Um, he wouldn't crack my, my lineup much in, in 15 teamers, but yeah, I mean, get him this week. Maybe he, he makes your lineup and uh, see where it goes from there. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear. Check breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Check planning for what's next and how to save for it. That's where bank of America can help for your financial to do's bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now you write about waivers every single week for The Athletic. If you don't have a subscription, theathletic.com slash rates and barrels gets you in the door for a dollar a month for the first year. Um, you wrote up at least one twin, I remember from the story this week. You had Joey Gallo in there, and I was looking at their their lineups from the first week. Trevor Larnack is also playing a lot, and he is thriving early on. Against righties, he's been in the cleanup spot predominantly. He even started a game against the lefty, moved to the bottom third of the order. This is basically what I thought Alex Kirilov could do for the Twins if he were healthy with an opportunity to play. And there's there's one other thing that's really stood out to me with Larnick. I've had the Twins on a couple of times over the past week. He doesn't look as heavy as he has looked in the past. He looks a lot more spry to me, which is a really good sign for a guy that Fangraphs once described as, quote, a bit of a lug. He doesn't yes. look like a lug anymore. <laughs> like he, he just he looks more like just a ball player, which I think bodes really well for for his chances of uh, you know maybe holding this prominent role. But this this could be more of like a shallow league sort of impact when you have this sort of placement mm-hmm. in a lineup that's certainly not a bad lineup. Uh, it's a bit like the Brendan Donovan conversation a week ago, where he's probably not available in a lot of fifteen team leagues, maybe not even that many twelves. But his impact is. Potentially a big one and one where you have to think about him in almost all formats if he's going to stay in this cleanup spot against righties. Yeah, I mean, that is really critical and he's hitting there pretty consistently. And I did in the, I did write up Larnack and I'm actually, I'm looking at it now. I did put in a bid recommendation for 15 teamers and I, I will do that if I see him available in any of mine. And he was either available in one or had a, a pretty low, you know, a low enough roster rate that, um, you know, readers, who are in 15-teamers, they should at least check their waiver wire because apparently Larnack uh, is available in some 15-teamers. So uh, for, for those formats, I put an 8 to 9% uh, bid recommendation because, yeah, I mean, he's he's going to be, I think, one of the better hitters that you're going to be able to get off of waivers uh, for the 
foreseeable uh, upcoming weeks. And I, I think he's worth one or 2% in the 12 teamers too. Uh, not only because he's hitting in that cleanup spot, but I mean, he is showing power and he showed it a bit last year as well. And the one concern that I have about Larnack and, and what I worry and, and would maybe caution people who want to bid more than say 2% of fab in a 12 teamer on Larnack is that he's hit really well on balls and play as a major leaguer. And yet I see absolutely nothing in his profile that suggests that that's something that's sustainable. He's been doing it for a while. So I, that's, it's one of the real anomalies to me, um, how he's been able to, to hit for as high as an average as he has. But to me, he profiles as like a, like a 220, 225 hitter. So I think even, even if he were to do that, I think there's enough power there and there's clearly enough run producing opportunities that he's still worth, worth having in 12 teamer. Yeah. I think he's, he's interesting because he's showing very, very early a lower K rate. He's been a 30% K rate player in the upper levels of the minor leagues at times during his previous taste of the big leagues. He's got a 10% barrel rate in almost a full season's worth of plate appearances kind of stretched out over parts of three seasons with the twins now. So he's going to hit the ball hard when he hits it. That's always been part of the deal. He does walk a little bit more than someone like Cody Clemens, who we talked about earlier. Uh, and I think the thing that's really kind of jumping off the page, too, when you look at his Fangraphs page right now, the O-swing percentage for Trevor Larnack. Again, it's only been six games, down at 19.2%. That's down from 26.3% a year ago and 27.8% during his half-season debut back in 2021. So this looks like a a player who's finding his way at the big league level right now. I wouldn't be surprised that, that K-rate does tick up closer to 28 30% as he continues to see this regular playing time, but where he's at in the lineup is really encouraging. So I might even go like four to five percent in a 12 team league where he's out there if I'm looking for that power boost, because I think he can provide that at a very minimum and maybe you get a little bit more in terms of run production that we would have expected going into the season. You look at who's out right now for this team. It, it's not like Jorge Polanco's absence is opening up that playing time for Larnack. It's, it really is you know, Kirloff and having one less guy kind of in the, the corner uh, corner infield DH outfield mix. That's been sort of the key so far, and I think he's playing well enough to keep this opportunity. Let's talk about Joey Weimer for a moment. Playing time is kind of the, the theme of the week, of course, if you, if you can't tell, but he's started every single game since being called up by the Brewers last week. Al, I was a little cautious with them last weekend. He's playing some center field, too. So when Garrett Mitchell sits against the lefty, Weimer is the next guy who moves in to that spot. And he's playing that spot pretty well. His outfield defense looks really good. Keeps that playing time floor pretty stable. The only real downside I see right now is that Joey Weimer is currently stuck in the number nine spot in the batting order. And that's that's definitely something that deserves a, a little bit of a penalty but if you look at how that that lineup stacks up it's really weird TVR and, and of course you know you watch a lot of Brewers I, I don't need to tell you this but the uh you know the bottom half of the order all of those hitters are doing extremely well in fact Garrett Mitchell Brian Anderson and Bryce Terang are all uh on the fangrafts uh, uh value calculator they're all in the top 25 among hitters in roto value right now Brian Anderson is number two right behind Glaber Torres. And I, you know, none of it I think is sustainable by a, you know, a strict definition, but I mean, I like Brian Anderson with an opportunity to play for the next couple of months in that park. Uh, I think, you know, he's, he's legit as a 12 teamer kind of guy, just not, you know, 
with like a, what is it? A 1.060 slugging or something like that. But <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they, they all have something to give. And then Terang in some ways is the, or not Terang, but uh, Weimer is the most interesting of them because he, he has the potential to deliver on everything uh, in, in a five by five. So uh, it's great that he's hitting every day and he's hitting behind, you know, a cluster of, of hitters who are all just tearing it up. And then, and then the lineup turns around and he can score some runs too. And I think the number I'm watching for Joey Weimer is actually the O swing percentage. Just like we mentioned with Trevor Larnack, this is not an area where we've seen a good number so far. It's first five big league games. This is a guy that struck out 30.2% of the time at double A last season, where he spent about two thirds of his season. It's part of the reason why I wasn't telling everyone to go all in last weekend once he got this opportunity, because I thought there could be some growing pains. Those could still be coming. However, the good news is when you play good defense and you play every day and you've got this power speed combo, even if you're a bit of a batting average liability, you can actually do enough to make an impact. Weimer was 25 for 26 as a base stealer at double A in 84 games last year, six for eight as a base stealer at triple A. And of course, that came with a combined 21 homers as well. So becoming a little bit fringy as a possible consideration for a 12-team league. It might be more of like a schedule-dependent sort of thing. If you saw a handful of lefties coming up on the schedule for the Brewers in a given week, maybe you'd give them a stream and just sort of see what happens. Uh, But I do think the upward mobility in the lineup is limited so long as the more established hitters in this core remain healthy. I know it's the Luis Urias injury that sort of opened the door for Anderson to play third, Weimer to get the call up to play mostly in the outfield or entirely in the outfield. I just think you have to look at this situation and and expect that the K rate's going to jump and the batting average, the batting order position probably remains the same, at least the bottom third for Weimer for at least the next couple of weeks, barring a, a quick adjustment with that approach. If he's that aggressive, the K rate is almost certainly going to start ticking up. I just, I'm sorry, but I just want to ask about Garrett Mitchell uh, because uh, with you again, watching the, the Brewers much more than I do, are you buying the the power? Because to me, that's, that's really interesting that here's somebody who stole bases in the minors. So you figure that that's probably coming at some point. Do you buy him as a across the board threat? I do. I think he also has some swing and miss concerns that we saw a season ago at that same double A level. So you have to be worried about that. Uh, early returns are encouraging. The O-swing percentage for Mitchell is much better than it is for Weimer in this brief time that we've seen Weimer. Uh, going back to last season, Garrett Mitchell had nearly a 12% barrel rate when he debuted last year. Hard hit rate backed that up too. Uh, so I just I like what he's doing. The thing that he was struggling with in the minors, he was not hitting the ball in the air. Garrett Mitchell had a ground ball rate of 57% or higher at every single minor league stop since getting to the big leagues. Last season, 39.4%, so big turnaround there. This year, only a 20% ground ball rate. I don't think he's an extreme fly ball hitter all of a sudden, but it sort of makes sense to me. He's getting that power more often because he actually is hitting the ball in the air. He's hit the ball hard for a little while now. I'm starting to believe this is actually a really well-rounded skill set. I think there's a safer floor here than Weimer. I think it's part of the reason we saw Mitchell first last year. Mm-hmm. Just a, a guy that they thought wouldn't necessarily fall on his face, could play great defense in center field. Um, so I, I'm excited about both of these guys. Mitchell, to me, is more 12-team viable than Weimer right now, too, if you're looking. I mean, it's just one of those things where both of them, I think, are are vulnerable to losing some playing time. Weimer would lose some time against righties. Mitchell's going to lose some time against lefties. Uh, but I think I trust this floor just a tick more with Garrett Mitchell if I'm trying to choose between those two for a more shallow mixed league right now. 
I wanted to ask you, you wrote about Alec Burleson this week in St. Louis. Do you think the spat between Ali Marmol and, and Tyler O'Neill this week is something that just gets buried and we just forget about it and life goes on? Tyler O'Neill goes back to being the, the rebound candidate with health this year that we expect him to be. Or do you think this is actually a, a door opening for someone like Burleson to possibly play a little bit more and, and for O'Neill to fall out of favor on more of a long-term basis? I mean, I, I could see them just trading him if they if they think there's actually like a problem there between yeah. manager and player. They just, they'll just deal him because there's plenty of value in doing that. But do you think this is actually meaningful for someone else to step up and take a share of playing time? I tend to think not. Just and again, situations are different. The people involved uh, are are the people involved and not some some other people. But my recollection is that when these things have happened, they tend to blow over within a couple of days. So I'm not thinking that this creates a bigger opening for Burleson. But if this is more than a, a two-day or th- three-day thing, I think maybe Dylan Carlson is the bigger beneficiary of this because Burleson's been starting pretty steadily against righties. Uh, and that just might that just might be where things are at right now with the Cardinals anyway. Um, and I don't want to infer too much from just a, a week's worth of games, but from the start, it does look like Dylan Carlson is maybe the one who's playing time is more endangered. So uh, may, maybe it opens up something for him. My expectation is going forward that both O'Neill and Burleson will will get a, a pretty good share of playing time and they'll, they'll both be, well, O'Neill I expect will be viable in 12 teamers. I think Burleson eventually could be. Yeah. With O'Neill being able to play center field and getting most of his starts out there, I think all of his starts out there so far, they can coexist in the same lineup. The trick will be once Lars Newtbar comes back, someone has to lose playing time. And at yeah. that point they'll have to make a decision. Now Burleson is hitting second. So at the very least it's similar to maybe the, the Gavin sheets situation where, you're not necessarily expecting Burleson to be on your roster all season, but when you look at the upcoming schedule, when you look at the temporary opportunity, the skills that he brings to the table, maybe he can help be sort of a glue guy that gets you through these next couple of weeks, providing that power. Burleson put together a really good season at AAA last year. We talked about him a few times in the prospect pod. 20 homers in 470 plate appearances. It was a 331, 372, 532 line with a 14.3% K rate. Didn't walk a ton, but wasn't striking out much and was 37% better than league average. Age appropriate for AAA as well. So I think he's a player you can be excited about so long as this door does remain open for him uh, while Newt Bar is out. Uh, one other news item that I, I meant to slip in a little earlier. I think it's important to keep an eye out for news on Kenta Maeda this weekend. It sounds like he's okay, but when he walked off the mound... From his first start of 2023, he was shaking out his arm a little bit, pitched really well against the Marlins. But uh, if he were to have any issues throwing between starts or anything, maybe that would open the door for Bailey Ober to come up. And pitching is Mm -hmm. so hard to come by. I think when you see a banged up starter going into the weekend, you want to keep that player on your watch list just to see if anything opens up unexpectedly, you know, between Friday and Sunday. I think that's a great call. And Ober would line up uh, to to get the start on Tuesday, and uh, so there'd have to be a little bit of, of manipulation there by the Twins, but um, they, they'd be able to start uh, Pablo Lopez on Monday uh, on, on his five days of rest. So um, that, that, you know, if something were uh, to... Uh, you know, be wrong with Maeda, then I, I, that's that seems like a really likely scenario. It also would line both Lopez and Ober up for a two-start week, although the the matchups aren't aren't great. But uh, 
yeah, no, it's definitely something to watch. It's not gone great for Ober in his first two starts at AAA, but I, I just wouldn't worry so much about that. Now, he's looked pretty good, though, on a per-inning basis for the Twins so far, so he remains one of those guys that got bumped down to AAA, not unlike Tyler McGill. And when the chances mm-hmm. come around, I want him on my team, and even if it's not permanent, I think the quality of those innings is high enough where I can take advantage of that in a lot of leagues. Let's talk about some pitching. Let's start with Seth Lugo, who is a starting pitcher again, and... <laughs> Went seven with seven Ks against the Rockies in his first start of the season. Padres, of course, rolling with a six-man rotation right now. Joe Musgrove making some progress back toward a return. What do you make of Seth Lugo in this role? And and are you interested in in picking him up in at least 15-team leagues, looking ahead at the schedule and trying to figure out uh, how he fits into this equation once Musgrove, in fact, returns? He is a a must-add in 15-teamers, and... One thing that I wrote about uh, with concern to him in the the waiver column is that because he is RP eligible and eventually he'll gain the SP eligibility, but with RP eligibility, that that makes him a little more valuable in head-to-head leagues where there's typically that that RP slot, that dedicated RP slot. So, um, I mean, I know you and I, we talked about this a little bit, but I did a double take when I saw that line against the Rockies with the, the, the seven innings. And so I went digging just a little bit, thinking like, okay, is there any reason here to just not discount this as he was just cruising because this is the Rockies away from home and it's you know possibly the most uh, desirable matchup in, in all of baseball. And he, he Lugo has always gotten a lot of called strikes, uh, whatever role he's pitched in. And so I thought, okay, and, and he got a ton in that game. I think he got 23 called strikes in that start against the Rockies. And so I thought, okay, are the Rockies a particularly uh, passive team? No, they're just the opposite. They have the second highest swing rate in the majors. So in his first start in, I think it's three years for Lugo. Um, first start in a long time. Pitches well enough to go seven deep. Gets a really aggressive team to watch a bunch of strikes. I'm sold. <laughs> uh, 15 teamer, you know, where what you get off of waivers is, is usually pretty risky. Um, you know, 12 team head to head where, uh, you know, even a decent starter can have a lot of value in an RP slot. He's definitely worth, uh, worth going the, the extra mile in bidding. So this is exactly where Eno's pitching plus model is really helpful for me because I, I see this, I think about the park and the opponent and the results were great. And I'm trying to temper my expectations. I'm like, okay, what was really happening there? Now, when you look at the Savant page first, you see a deeper arsenal than you'd expect for a guy that's spent so much yeah. time in the bullpen, right? There was a four-seamer, a curveball, a slider, a sinker, threw a couple of change-ups in there as well, but at least four pitches that he threw more than 10% of the time. If you look at the pitching model, which you can do on fan graphs now, if you go to the pitching leaderboard and you choose the pitch modeling tab, you can see both Eno's Stuff Plus model and you can see Cameron Groves' pitching bot model. So you can see just how much a player maybe has changed looking at that information. Seth Lugo had a 101 overall Stuff Plus number. Totally fine. That works for a back-end starter. 110 for location plus, so above average command, and a 109 overall pitching plus number from the model. So I think it's the curveball and the changeup that graded out well. He's not overthrowing the fastball. He's not throwing it too much. He's not throwing it 50, 60% of the time. He threw it like 40% of the time. 
this looks like a recipe for success so long as he actually stays in the mix. And just to put the, the stuff plus numbers into context, right? Michael Waka is in the back of that rotation right now. 84 stuff plus for him, a 101 location plus, 99 pitching plus. So Lugo, by the model at least in that first start, showed a better arsenal than Michael Waka did. It doesn't mean they'll necessarily use Lugo over Waka if they have to make that choice, but it's something to consider. Uh, Nick Martinez also comparing him to Lugo. Numbers were a little worse in the model. Uh, Ryan Weathers, who's actually up a little bit, very similar, but Lugo had better stuff than Ryan Weathers. So the guys he's trying to kind of battle for innings, Seth Lugo turning in some better underlying numbers than them too, and having some skills in the past that we've been excited about. So this looks like a really interesting story and one where I'm with you. If he's available in my leagues, I'm actually pretty interested because it could be a, a really nice, productive run for him. It's a good team. It's a good ballpark. There's a lot of things that can actually go right here. Looking ahead at the schedule, I believe he goes again this weekend on the road against Atlanta. So that will probably at least open more eyes to him if he pitches well. And then the way the schedule currently lines up, his next start would be a home start on April 15th against the Brewers. Because again, the Padres to start the season are employing that six-man rotation. So that does reduce the workload just a little bit works with some of the guys they've got in there right now too. So long as uh, starters are going deep enough, it won't overtax that bullpen. Now let's move on to the Royals. We're talking about Royals pitching. How, why, what's going on? (laughs) It it started earlier this week. I mentioned Lance Brozdowski does a lot of great work analyzing pitchers. Uh, He's been doing kind of daily arsenal breakdowns, looking at changes in movement, shape, and the Royals have a couple of guys who are changing. Brad Keller, who we talked about a little earlier in the week, and Chris Bubich, who, frankly, based on the overall leaderboards for the model, is much higher than I ever thought he could be. He's looking really good in pitching models right now. It was the it was Cameron Grove's model, not Eno's, but still a good model that you're looking at. Just kind of say, okay, like how what does this mean? How how good is Chris Bubich really? He's fifth in terms of the pitching bot stuff number. For this season. So he's behind Otani, Hunter Green, Jacob DeGrom, and Shane McClanahan. Does it five innings being in that in that spot mean he's gonna be like those guys? No, of course not. It just means Chris Bubich isn't necessarily terrible because he's changed. He's made some adjustments. Big adjustment. He has a slider now, and he pitched really well against the Blue Jays. So what do you make of, of both Brad Keller and Chris Bubich and, and these Royals pitchers actually making some pretty significant adjustments since we saw them last season? That's it's it's pretty eye opening, and I mean, yeah, just even you know, if you go from uh, the, the the pitching models to looking at uh, some of the the indicators and in, in how those uh, uh, pan out, uh, like on the plate discipline table and on Fangraphs, it's he looks like a totally different pitcher. I mean, this is somebody who had a very hard time getting chases. Oh, swinging that first start was more than thirty eight percent, which is outstanding. Uh, he was always somebody who um, sort of like what we were talking about with Lugo or like his teammate Brady Singer, who uh, if he's going to get strikeouts, it's typically from called strikes. Well, he hardly got any called strikes in that start, but he had a whiff rate of almost fifteen percent. So, yeah, I, like you said, we can't really uh, we can't really. Uh, expect uh, to you know rely on that that uh, start too much to to project forward, but I mean just the, all the changes uh, in all those indicators that you and I both talked about. I mean it's really fascinating, and I think if nothing else that that puts them on the watch list. Yeah, and I think if you're in a league where pitching's hard to come by, so most fifteen team mixed leagues meet this description. 
The matchup is home against Atlanta this week. That's probably going to keep people away so long as Bubich doesn't come out and shove on Sunday. The dreaded Sunday shove start that juices up a fab bids. That, that could happen. I think the other interesting part of this arsenal is that the velocity is up. If you look at this this pitch mix, pitch mix from last year, Chris Bubich's fastball last season averaged 91.9. In that first start, he was at 93.5 with his four-seamer. Big difference there, getting that extra tick and a half there. So lots of changes from Bubich. Uh, not the same guy that was getting knocked around badly at the big league level previously. And I think someone that I am thinking about, at least in those deeper mixed leagues, maybe even in some 12-teamers as a min-bid sort of player. If you pop mm-hmm. that much in the model, that's a higher ceiling than we expected. So maybe we're talking about a possible top 50 starting pitcher here based on some of the things we're seeing in those models right now. Really important to take that chance if you've got a roster spot to burn. Uh, Braxton Garrett getting an opportunity for the Marlins. Al, he was in that long relief role to begin the season. I believe this is because of a Johnny Cueto injury. I remember seeing Cueto yes. uh, walk off earlier this week. So we'll see Garrett pitch against the Mets this weekend. And then the next turn he would get in the rotation comes on Saturday, April 15th against the Diamondbacks. So what do you make of Braxton Garrett at this point, seeing him as someone who didn't make the rotation initially, but is that next guy up in Miami? Well, I you know I liked him coming off of last season. Good top line results, uh, some really good indicators uh, on that level. As I was talking about with Bubich, with uh, the the CSW, the the called and, and swinging strikes, the uh, the chase rate, uh, just a lot of indicators that that suggested that he can be successful. Great park, uh, and in the short term, I mean, we don't know if there's going to be a longer term. For, for Garrett with the Marlins this year. But at least in the short term, he's got that start coming up uh, this week against the Diamondbacks. Right now, that's looking like a very good matchup. He's got the Guardians the following week, who I think also overall are pretty good matchup. Don't strike out a lot, but also I think that's a, a start where you know Garrett could go six innings and you know not give up very much. So uh, I think he's a good short-term streamer and even in a 12-team league. And as far as the longer term... Um, you know, these things do, to, to uh, quote our uh, our colleague Nando Dufino, these things tend to work themselves out. But, I, you know, at one point the Marlins were discussing a six-man rotation. I don't know if maybe they'll think of going back to that because I'm just not sure what Garrett would need to do in AAA at this point. Yeah, I don't think he has a whole lot left to prove there. So he's probably the long reliever if he gets bumped back out of the rotation. I guess if he pitches poorly enough, they could bring up one of the younger prospects to take that spot. But... I do think Braxton Garrett deserves consideration as a streamer. Maybe one of the better streaming options available for this week because it's a bit of a mess out there. It's bad. I was looking and trying to find (laughs) anyone of interest with with soft matchups, someone who I trusted just a little because of their own skills and then, of course, had the sweet spot of uh, an opponent that I really wasn't that worried about. Um, Complicating things perhaps a little bit too in Atlanta, Kyle Wright is expected to come back on the 11th of April. So one of the spots currently occupied by Bryce Elder or Dylan Dodd will likely go to Kyle Wright, Al. So what do you do with Elder and Dodd this weekend if you were thinking about streaming them? Uh, I mean, we we'll still wait because I don't know if that's a given about right. Uh, you know, tell me if you've seen differently. Uh, I don't know that that's a, a for sure thing that that he's coming back this week. Uh, if he is, then you know, I think you you definitely don't stream him. Uh, you, you don't. I, the only one of the three I think maybe you add for some long term consideration is Jared Schuster. Hmm. Um, just he's got the highest ceiling, but 
I'm not really excited about any of three of them in the short term, partly because there's going to be such a crunch, uh, not only when Wright comes back, but then when Freed comes back, Soroka eventually figures is in there. And is there going to be room for any of them, much less one of them? (laughs) So that's why I said Schuster's the one I I would probably hold for the the longer term. I think that both um, uh, Dodd and Elder have some appeal. And Elder pitched pretty well last year when he was up. But um, I think maybe they're, they're bench guys and 15-teamers for now at, at best. Yeah, I think I'm out on all of them. I think they're just they're a group of back-end starters that I don't fully trust. We've seen them. We've seen Atlanta struggle to develop some of their back-end starters in the past. Some of their up-and-down guys have been battingly inconsistent. And I'm afraid that with the arsenals these guys bring to the table, that could be uh, the script here again in 2023. But hopefully for their sake, they don't have to rely as much on that group, Elder, Dodd, and Schuster, uh, as they've had to early on this season. I think I have one streamer that I like, maybe more than one, but one going on the road to Detroit, Anthony Discofani. I think I like Discofani going into Detroit, given that ballpark, given the state of that lineup, and given that when we've seen Discofani healthy, he's looked like he's been kind of an okay mid-range starter for deeper leagues. It's a very tepid endorsement, but that's the state of this week. That's a great call. That's a great call. Uh, probably should have had him in the uh, in the column. And yeah, it's. I mean, I. That's why I would include Garrett Braxton too, because normally as a one start guy, he wouldn't necessarily make the cut for twelve teamers. But if you if you've got to bring somebody in, I think he and Tusclafani are are far and away uh, going to be your best options. So yeah, I like that call a lot. Yeah, very park dependent. Of course, his home park helps him out. But Descafani on my radar right now, now that he is healthy again. Uh, I'm never really a Chris Flexen guy. He's on the road against the Cubs. You can you can try to talk me into that one if you want to. I don't know if you're going to be successful. Um, every time I see Austin Gomber on the road, I just think back to a couple of years ago when I know I was among the people that threw him out there for a two-step in April, and it went very, very poorly. I want to say that was a, a first start on the road against the Giants before the Giants were known to be an effective mixing and matching lineup that could do some damage. And that was before like a lot of things changed with them too. But uh, I don't know if I want to mess with Austin Gomber either. I think you could look at guys like Tucker Davidson maybe against the Nationals or Zach Davies against the Marlins, Zach Plesak against the Nationals. But those all look like spots where those underperforming lineups could actually wake up and put some crooked numbers on the board more than spots where those low-end pitchers are actually going to come through. Yeah, I, I don't trust any of those uh, those streaming options. Uh, and yeah, like we, with uh, Gomber, that's that's not a bad situation in Seattle, and that's not a knock against the Mariners so much as just it's a, it's a tough park for hitters. So, um, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I pass on all of them way too much risk. Yeah, look at Hunter Gaddis. He's got the Yankees, which you know, first start was brutal, second start was better. I don't want any part of the Yankees with Hunter Gaddis, so that's an easy pass for me as well. The two start pitchers are a little bit better. I think you've been a long term fan of Wade Miley. Like you're, you're you're like an original Wade Miley fan, Al, and he's got (laughs) road starts against the D backs and the Padres. I, I still see Miley as more of a five and fly guy more often than not. The Brewers have decent bullpen depth. Maybe it's a little more unproven right now than it's been in past seasons, but I think this is actually a viable two-start week, at least in 15-team leagues. I don't know if I'm tripping over myself trying to jam Miley into a lineup in a 12-teamer, but I think he does get overlooked sometimes because of a, a brief lull in his strikeout rate a little earlier in his career. 
Well, yeah, I am a long-term Miley fan, which is why I have him on some deep league rosters already, and he'll probably be starting for me in those rosters. But I, I had him in an early draft of the waiver column, and I disappointed myself in not being able <laughs> to go there. That start at San Diego really kind of scares me. So um, if he can split the starts, I think he's fine at Arizona. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't chance it. And I guess that K rate's been down in recent years too, but I, I still mm-hmm. think the perception of who he is as a pitcher, it actually gets skewed more by the time in, in Baltimore and Boston, some really bad ratio seasons in there, but he's really kind of had it working in recent years, really since his first stint with the Brewers back in 2018, more good than bad from that season, uh, 167 innings back in 2019 for the Astros with a sub four ERA and a 134 whip. That was the year of the rabbit ball. It really seems like he's got an ability to avoid a lot of hard contact, just makes it work, even though it's not the uh, the prettiest profile to uh, to get excited about. Uh, Johnny Brito should be back from AAA. If he's back, he's got the Guardians and the Twins. Are you in on Brito where available, Al? Well, I, I did sell him short uh, for the, the first start. So I feel like maybe I should learn something, <laughs> but uh, I'm not too excited here either. Um, so I did mention before the the matchups with the Guardians, I think right now is, is pretty good unless you really want strikeouts. The Twins matchup kind of ruins it for me. So I, I'd put Brito probably roughly on a par with Miley or maybe even slightly below. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair at this point, especially with one of those starts also coming at Yankee Stadium in a very... Uh, hitter-friendly environment, and you mentioned the Guardians, a team that really tempers the whiffs pretty effectively. So I like what I saw in that debut, but I don't want to over-project based on that either. I think he's right on that borderline for a 15-team stream. Uh, Matt Manning has a really tough first matchup. He's got the Blue Jays on the road. He does catch the Giants at home. People are divided on whether or not you can stream against the Giants right now. Location matters, but part of it for me, as I mentioned last week, you know, Mitch Handelger being down, that's a key bat for them that they're missing. I think they still have some questions about the mixing and matching they're doing this year and whether or not it's going to be as effective as it's been throughout these last three seasons or so. Uh, But I'm curious if you see anything in Manning that gets you interested either for this two-step or possibly beyond in deeper leagues. No, I'd like to see more from Manning. Uh, Obviously, a good start in Toronto would go a a long way towards feeling a lot more confident in him. But that is a scary start. As far as I'm concerned, if you are talking about daily leagues or, you know, um, twice a week lineup setting, that one at home against the Giants is kind of interesting. And I know I just talked about being scared of the, the Giants lineup hitting in a place like Guaranteed Rate Field, but at Comerica Park, yeah, that's... That's that's doable. I'm not excited about it, but it's it's in the conversation. Yeah, I, I think so too. But I think my expectations for Manning's ceiling are down considerably compared to where they were when he was a prospect. I think at this point, I'm looking more for a back-end starter with K's as opposed to uh, someone who's going to be a top 30, top 40 starting pitcher in fantasy someday. I just don't know if that's really in the cards based on how things have played out for him. Uh, Matt Strom gets a two-start week. He's currently filling in for Ranger Suarez for the Phillies. Home against the Marlins, road against the Reds, of course, in Cincinnati. We say it all the time. We don't like streaming pitchers in that park, but we don't mind streaming pitchers against that lineup. So this might be right in that same kind of Miley Brito conversation. I'm not necessarily paying much for this two-step, in part because I think with Strom, it was 61 pitches last time out. 
So if he goes 70 or 75, that's still cutting it really close if you're trying to get through five innings and be eligible for a win. And I really want the risky two-start pitchers I go with to not have a lot of questions about volume ceilings. And I think Strom has kind of always had that in part because of health, but now because of recent usage filling in for Suarez. Yeah, just makes the the Lugo start all the more impressive, but not not a bad uh not a bad double dip. I do like you worry a bit about uh, any starts in Cincinnati, but um he's, you know, I just like we talked about with Lugo uh in an R, a league with RP slots. There's there's some appeal there, but there's also some some blow up potential with that second start. Yeah, for me, it's never really been a question of talent with Matt Strom. It's been just mm-hmm. avoiding the injured list. Career, 375 ERA, 119 whip. Most of those outings have come in relief, so curious to see how effective he can be in an expanded role. But good for him getting this opportunity. Uh, I do think he can, at least in NL-only leagues, be a useful pickup for the upcoming week. Uh, Luis Sessa, however, no, I'm not interested. That's a road start against Atlanta, and he gets the Phillies as banged up as that lineup is. I just can't bring myself to use Sessa in those matchups, even in the deepest of leagues. Um, Let's take a look at some bullpen updates here as we go. Now, the Angels used Jose Quijada to pick up their first save of the season, and their manager, Phil Nevin, cited Carlos Estevez's recent workload for the reason why they went with Quijada. So is this maybe a spot where you want to take a cheap speculative bid on Quijada in case, I don't know, in case Phil Nevin is lying or in case Carlos (laughs) Estevez has a really bad weekend and leaves the door open? I, I think this is one of those situations where Estevez entered the year with pretty low security anyway, a lot of uncertainty about whether he even had a firm hold on the job and questions about who exactly might step up to be the option to get saves if Estevez faltered or if he got hurt. And maybe now we've got a little more information. I'm just avoiding that situation. There, there just doesn't seem to, if, if, if Estevez really just is the primary option there, I'm just not that interested. I mean, at some point in, in a lot of leagues, you just have to go with somebody who's getting steady save chances, but it's not clear whether that will or will not be the case with Estevez. And there's just too much uncertainty there and nobody that excites me enough in that bullpen, uh, which makes me think of another name, by the way, um, which is one I don't know that we were planning on talking about. When I think of the Angels, I think of the Diamondbacks and the Marlins as teams that I'm just sort of avoiding uh, overall. But Drake Jameson getting, I think it was a two-inning save recently in a, a Diamondbacks bullpen that doesn't have great options. I wonder if he could emerge as a more traditional closer because that, that'd be sort of interesting. Yeah, it's tricky though. I, I think with Jameson they probably still see a starter because he's still young and they may have multiple needs at some point. Madison Bumgarner doesn't look good. I don't trust Zach Davies at all. We know Brendan Fott is, as soon as he's pitching well at AAA, the calls for him to be called to brought up again, that's all going to be there. Uh, so I think with Jamison, the question is like, is Jamison a good enough reliever where you could use him as your ninth pitcher in a lot of leagues? And you could just justify if you don't have a third closer, if you don't have a seventh starter, do you just throw them out there hoping to vulture some wins or saves because of high leverage usage? And I think the answer is probably yes. Maybe it's a little bit like Yohan Duran this time last year. You're just betting on a good pitcher and seeing where the role actually goes. It seems like the greatest area of need is where he'll end up. It's certainly possible that he gets more saves because 
Uh, Scott McGuff, who I liked as a really cheap option, uh, faltered in one of his opportunities. Andrew Chafin, I think, is more of a setup guy than someone they're going to use all the time for saves. Maybe they're mixing and matching there, too, and it's just a bunch of guys that are going to get a handful of saves. That could happen as well. Uh, but I think Arizona's complicated, and uh, Dre Jameson, even if he's not a regular closer, is of some interest to me in our deeper leagues where a non-closing pitcher can still be pretty valuable. Uh, for what it's worth, by the way, going back to the Angels' bullpen, Quijada has the best stuff by the pitching bot, so... Maybe that's a slight edge for him, but I think with Quijada and Ryan Tapera and Matt Moore, you're splitting hairs. All those guys are pretty interesting. They've used Jimmy Hergit for saves, and then, of course, they brought in Estevez, so that could be a revolving door all year. If you do speculate in the Angels' bullpen, do it with very small bids in fab and just hope that things break your way. There's no reason to overextend yourself investing in that situation. Uh, one other one to just kind of ignore is Adam Simber got a save on Thursday for the Blue Jays. It's just because the Jays' A relievers weren't available. So don't don't make anything of that. They had multiple key guys that they didn't have up in that game. Uh, we did see a move in our Keeper League, Maki, which runs its pickups on Thursday night. Ian Kahn was in uh, in the fab last night, making a move, letting Craig Kimbrell go, and picking up Jose Alvarado. So as you look at this Phillies bullpen, is that something you'd be considering doing this weekend as well in leagues where Alvarado is available? Like, What have you learned about the Phillies relief core that would maybe make you change your tune about who is likely to get saves there? I, yeah, I don't, I mean, Ian's a super savvy guy, so I'm sure he's seeing something uh, maybe that I'm not because the the only clue that I've really seen with the Phillies losing all but one of their games is that Craig Kimbrell was used in the ninth in the one game that, that they won. That was a four-run lead going into the ninth. Uh, Kimbrell made it a three-run lead, but, you know, that's, you see that all the time, closers coming in with a cushion and giving up a run or two, but so I, I still tend to think that that's going to be, um, you know, a, a mixed bag with, uh, you know, three or four different relievers pitching in, including Alvarado. But uh, I mean, if we could lean any way, I actually would be leaning towards Kimbrell. Yeah. Alvarado popping in the models as always, because you could see that when you watch Jose Alvarado pitch, he is absolutely filthy. Question's always been consistency with location. If he gets that, that could be something that separates him from the likes of, of Kimbrel uh, and and Gregory Soto as well. We know Gregory Soto's got good stuff, but doesn't always know where it's going. I just I thought that was a really interesting move because Ian's such a sharp player, um, yeah. he, working in tandem with uh, his buddy Rob Mershak too. So want to see how that plays out over the weekend. Keep a close eye on that Phillies bullpen. Uh, the Pirates had Dwayne Underwood pick up a save. A bit of a similar situation to what we talked about with Adam Simber. David Bednar just wasn't available because of recent usage. Maybe in this case, it points to someone that we had previously overlooked, though, being an option to be next man up for save chances if Bednar gets hurt or if Bednar gets traded. So a name to file away, perhaps, for the future. And as we learned over the course of this week, we talked about it last Friday, the Rockies' bullpen situation in the absence of Daniel Bard, bit of an open door last weekend. It became Pierce Johnson very quickly, and it has stayed mm -hmm. Pierce Johnson in the time since. It was reflected in FAB. We talked about that at the beginning of the week. There were some massive bids for Pierce Johnson last Sunday, so there are very few leagues where he's still available. Uh, I still see this as a very temporary situation. Daniel Bard is with the Rockies throwing bullpen sessions. No timetable for his return, of course, and all the best to him, but... Uh, I think eventually Bard at least gets a chance to pitch in that role again, and Pierce Johnson becomes droppable once that happens. So uh, hopefully for the sake of anybody who took that chance, it's a few more weeks of, of Pierce Johnson piling up saves before possibly handing that job back over. 
yeah, so there's the likely short-term nature of the job for Johnson and then just, you know, pitching as a Rockies closer. That, to me, is a little bit scary. But I think if you are just targeting somebody who's going to get saves uh, with some regularity over the next few weeks, I think Johnson is the one that you should be your first target. Some good news that you've been relying on A.J. Minter. We're still waiting for Rysel Iglesias to resume throwing, so that window remains open for Minter to pile up saves in his absence. We also saw Evan Phillips pick up his second save. That came Thursday against the Diamondbacks, struck out a batter. It was a perfect inning. Uh, so apparently Bruce Dar Gratterall was unavailable due to some back tightness, but after the game, manager Dave Roberts implied he would have used Gratterall in the eighth anyway. So if you're in a shallow league, an eight or a 10 team league where Evan Phillips is still out there, it looks like he has the upper hand, at least for a larger share of the saves in that Dodgers bullpen. Something we kind of expected by the end of draft season, but never really got that clear indicator that he was the guy. Yeah, um, which made him you know, relatively cheap and... I still don't completely trust that this is going to be the the consistent pattern going forward. But uh, yeah, I, I think because there is such a, a lack of really good options right now that uh, if he is available, he, he is a must add. I think you mentioned in passing, you're kind of avoiding the Miami situation. I was going to say yeah. AJ Puck in, in shadow leagues. Actually, I kind of like AJ Puck. I like AJ Puck oh. more than I like Dylan Floro at least. Yeah, a lot of people do. I think, at least in CBS, he is the most added reliever. And I just, that's one where I just don't trust. It's not the skills for Puck. It's just I don't trust the the, the managerial preference uh, to go with, with just Puck alone. And the thing is, yeah, from a fantasy perspective, Floro is not exciting, but he's really effective. He is somebody who, you know, he's the Wade Miley of relievers, which is, I guess, maybe why I like him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> gets a, a lot of soft ca- contact very consistently. So he's he's effective. And if he if there was some kind of clear indication that he was he was going to be the primary closer, I'd be pretty much all in on him. Mm. Uh, but I think it is going to be split at least uh, between the two of them and maybe Tanner Scott gets in there, too. Yeah, Tanner Scott is filthy. There's no doubt about mm-hmm. that. But I'm I'm leaning towards Puck, uh, and I do think he is shadow league viable right now. Seems to be the preferred choice for the time being. It does seem like something that could be subject to change, though, based on the whims. We don't know a lot about Skip Schumacher and his tendencies as uh, as a big league manager. So a lot to uh, to monitor there. Once the Marlins generate a few more of those save opportunities. We are going to go uh, as we sign off. Another reminder, you can get a subscription to The Athletic for a dollar a month for the first year at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. You can find Al on Twitter at AlMelkyRBB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Monday.